Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events that have happened in the past. And now let's get started with our main story today, the murder at Thornbury. For those of you who don't know, Thornbury is a market town and civil parish in South Gloucestershire, England, about 12 miles north of Bristol, and its usual quiet atmosphere was disturbed on Tuesday the 26th of May 1891 by a truly shocking murder. But first, let's start in Bristol with Henry Cooper, who was originally born in London and was a very successful steeplejack, who would often travel around the country. London, Plymouth, Manchester and even Ireland and he would be away from home for long periods of time, even months. He would often earn as much as £5 per week but, like all self-employed, his work was intermittent and at lean times he'd take up less skilled work like labouring. Sarah, his wife, was the daughter of George Lewis, a working man who was living at Banks Cottages, a small rank of houses in St Philip's Marsh. Henry and Sarah had been married in 1876 and were living at Lawrence Hill and neighbours there said that there was little doubt that the couple had bad patches in their relationship. As time had gone on, they were forced to sell much of their furniture until there was nothing left. The last sale raised only £1.8 and with only that to their names, William and Sarah headed to Manchester on a Monday with no clear idea of their future only that they needed to find work. This decision seemed to have been quite sudden, because the first that many of their neighbours in Lawrence Hill knew about them even leaving was when they read about Sarah's death in the newspaper. Henry and Sarah, who were both 44 at the time, left their house at 12.30 on Monday the 25th of May. They were planning on walking to Manchester to get more work. This extremely long trek would have been quicker, but it appears that they stopped at quite a few pubs along the route. In the evening, both were seen near Horfield Barracks, and they appeared to be drunk. The first witness at the trial was Harry Faltham, a colour sergeant at Horfield Barracks, who had heard the pair arguing, and the man saying over and over again that he would murder her. During the court hearing, colour sergeant Harry Faltham was asked to say who the couple were before telling the court what was said. Harry replied he had never seen the couple before, but he could identify the man. Henry Cooper had turned his face to the wall before the witnesses had entered the room so he could not be seen, and then asked to turn around and face the witness. Harry identified the man as a man he'd seen that night. Colour Sergeant Feltham then went on to say that he'd heard the prisoner say, I will murder you, over and over again, interspersed with some really foul language. As he had been saying this, he had been pointing at the woman. After this, the couple were seen heading towards Filton. Both were very drunk. About an hour later, the couple were seen outside the Duke of York Inn at Horfield by Frederick George Cook. Frederick said that he met a number of soldiers surrounding the prisoner and a woman whom he had not seen. The prisoner had taken his coat and hat off and was threatening to fight any of them. Both man and woman were drunk and he told the man to put on your coat like a good fellow. 
don't fight, you are drunk. At this, Henry put his coat on and said he'd buy the soldiers some beer, which he did. Meanwhile, Sarah walked on. When Henry realised that Sarah wasn't there, he turned round to Frederick in the pub and said, Have you seen a woman, in fact my wife? Frederick had replied to him that yes, she had gone up the road yonder and some of those soldiers had gone after her. Henry and Frederick then went after Sarah and Henry called Sarah every foul name he could muster, as well as saying, I'll drown thee in the next pond we come to, I'll do for thee. The soldiers were there too, interfering with Sarah and doing their utmost to persuade her to go with them. Frederick tried really hard at this point to get Henry to return to Horfield and get lodgings for himself and his wife. Henry replied, I'll pay five shillings for a lay down for her, but I will have a drink first. The whole group, including the soldiers, returned to the Duke of York pub. Henry and Sarah only stayed for about 15 minutes before heading off to the Victoria Inn, but he couldn't remember if he'd had a drink there. He did though try and hit Sarah but missed. A fish hawker travelling on the road between Patchway and Almondsbury on Tuesday morning at nine o'clock said he saw a man and woman respectably attired asleep on a heap of stones. He didn't speak to them though as he thought they looked drunk. But a few days later he would go to the police station and identify Sarah and Henry as the ones he'd seen that day. The next time the couple was seen was at the Swan Inn in Almondsbury by PC Clifford. Clifford said that the woman looked worse for drink when he saw them there in the tap room, whilst the man was eating bread and cheese, using a penknife similar to that produced as evidence. The pair were next seen at the ship in Alveston by Mark Beaver of Thornbury at 6.45pm in the tap room. Once again, they were both drunk. During the conversation Mark had with Henry, Henry told him that his wife had ruined his life and destroyed their happy home with her alcoholism. Henry then looked straight at his wife Sarah and said, the next canal I come to, I'll shove you in. Sarah then replied that it'll be all right on the morrow. All three left shipping about 8 p.m. and headed towards Thornbury with Sarah, the deceased, loitering behind. During this time, he was told that the pair had been walking for three days. By the time the trio made their way down Alveston Hill, the couple was staggering. Sarah fell over more than once and Henry went back for her when they were at the bottom of Thornbury Hill. It was at this point that Beaver left them in the road near Marwood Grange. The next time Mark Beaver saw the couple was that evening when he had heard about the murder and then saw two stretchers carrying the couple he'd been with the same day. At about 830 Little Edith Annie Alsop, age 12, was sent out by her mum to go and get her siblings back in to go to bed. This was on the Bristol Road, when she saw a man and woman standing against the wall near the gates of what was then the villa, a large house at the entrance to Thornbury, next to what is now Tesco's garage, about 300 yards from the police station. As Edith stood frozen to the spot, she saw the man strike the woman to the ground, three times, and on the last time he was seen kneeling over her. Edith could also hear the woman say, You ain't gonna kill me, be you? And the man reply, I will. As Sarah lay dying, her husband crossed the road 
and leaned on the telephone post for a while before taking off his jacket. He returned to his wife and having put something to his throat, fell across her body. Edith would later say, I heard the woman groan very much on the ground and she moved her hands up and down towards her face as if she were in great agony. The frightened girl ran home to alert her parents and the news soon spread over the town. Only P.C. Coates was in the police station at the time, but he rushed out and found the man lying in the road with his throat cut, but still alive. He said, this is a bad job. And Henry replied, it is the drink. I've not done what I wanted to do. Witnesses who were helping Henry asked, who did this? Henry replied, I did. They then asked, who killed the woman? Henry replied, I did. Nearby on the footpath was a woman with a wound in her throat and she was quite obviously dead. Now, one of the places mentioned in today's story is the Horfield Barracks. These barracks were built largely in response to the Bristol riots of 1831. The barracks were capable of housing 500 infantry soldiers and had its own chapel and military school for their children. The chapel, which still exists but is now offices, was not licensed for burials, so any troops who died during their time at the barracks were buried at Horfield Parish Churchyard. As you can imagine, there was an initial uproar about having so many soldiers stationed there. However, the arrival of the soldiers did bring some benefits to the area. The number of public houses doubled between 1841 and 1851 to cater for the troops. During the period of the Crimean War, a mutiny took place at the barracks in 1868. A sergeant murdered a private soldier in a dispute over money. The barracks were decommissioned after the Second World War and demolished in 1966. The site became a telephone engineering works in the late 1960s and was redeveloped for housing in around 2000. It's in the area of the Wessex Avenue allotments. I'm currently doing some research about a soldier that was stationed at Horfield Barracks for a future show. If you have any information about the barracks or any other places of interest, please get in touch with me on Twitter or Facebook at Backtracker UK, capital B, capital T, capital UK. Or you can email me via Bradley Stoke Radio on admin at bradleystokeradio.com. Another place mentioned in our story so far is the Ship Inn at Alverston, which is an old coaching house that dates back to 1589. In the 19th century, the area around the Ship Inn was known as Alverston Green. It's still there on the B4061 Alverston Hill, next to the Thornbury Cricket Club. And looking at the pictures on the internet, which I found, it looks really nice and is on my list of places to go to once I'm let out.
we continue our story about William and Sarah Cooper. After 12-year-old Edith Annie Alsop raised the alarm, police officer Coates went to the scene. Henry had lost a lot of blood before police officer Coates arrived, but the officer staunched the wound with his hand and bound it with a scar. Otherwise, Henry would have died at the scene. Sarah's corpse was conveyed to the mortuary chapel at the workhouse, even though the workhouse argued that it was not their responsibility. They only agreed once the police sergeant said he would pay for the burial expenses if any questions arose. Henry was taken to a cell in the police station where he was attended to and the self-inflicted wound to his throat was sewn up. During his time in the police station, he asked if Sarah was dead and he was told that he better not talk about it. Henry then said, I know what I have done. I have killed my wife and I'll have to pay the penalty. I hope the poor soul didn't suffer nothing. Police remained in the room during the night to prevent Henry from trying to kill himself again, as he had already said he wanted to. Later in the evening, he was taken to the witness room in the upper part of the station and placed in a bed. When he was conscious and able to, Henry confirmed his name and that he was a steeplejack from London. He also clarified that the body found was his wife, Sarah Cooper, aged 44. In Henry's pocket, a notebook was found, showing that he had earned a good deal of money in his trade, and it was stated that sometimes would be as much as £5 a week. The knife with which the murder was committed was found near the prisoner's cap. It had one very sharp blade, which was covered in blood. The scene of the crime was marked by police with two red crosses and the bloodstains could still clearly be seen a couple of days over even though gravel was sprinkled over them. Henry had lived in Bristol for about 16 years and had been married to Sarah, a native of Bristol, for 14. Henry said that because Sarah was a drunk he'd had to sell some of his possessions raising only £1.08. He told Sarah that she had ruined him with her drinking and he would have to go to Manchester to seek work. And now I'm going to talk about our book of the week. This week it's The Candleman by Alex Scarrow. Now I read this a while ago when I was part of a book club and when I came across it again I just had to read it again to be honest because it was that good. The story begins in the North Atlantic Ocean in the year 1912 on that famously doomed ocean liner RMS Titanic where two people get together while they are awaiting the rescue boats to be lowered into the sea. The man has a story to tell his female companion. Then we move to the year 1888 in Whitechapel, London. Mary Kelly finds a terribly wounded man and she robs him of his money. The guilt makes her return to the hospital where the man suffering amnesia and she takes up the part of an important person in his life. This is of course the time of the infamous Jack the Ripper and his reign of terror across London. This story tells of a different tale of this horrible serial killer and yet catches the Victorian era very well in a dark thriller that tells an interesting take or version of 
of the misadventures of the most mysterious serial killer ever known. Don't know about you, but that description makes me want to go out and read it now. I have been a busy little bee scurrying through the archives looking for some back-in-the-day facts for you. On the 25th of April, 1940, Al Pacino was born. He shares his birthday with Ella Fitzgerald, who was born on 1918, and the English soldier and statesman Oliver Cromwell, who was born 1599. On the 27th of April, 1956, the first television broadcast by a British Prime Minister was made by Anthony Eden. On the 28th of April, 1603, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth I took place in London. Tens of thousands of people lined the streets to watch the procession. In 1945, on the 28th of April, World War II, Benito Mussolini was captured by partisans and shot while trying to flee Italy. On the 29th of April, in 1980, Sir Alfred Hitchcock passed away. And here's something for the football fans. On the 29th of April, in 1933, in the English FA Cup final between Everton and Manchester City, numbers were used on football players' shirts for the very first time. On the 30th of April, 1945, the German army in Italy surrendered to the Allies. And finally, in 1933, on the 30th of April, the US country singer and songwriter Willie Nelson was born. Now we're going to continue with our story about Henry and Sarah Cooper. We follow on now with the court case, where Henry appeared wearing a blue suit and a check scarf around his neck to hide the bandages that were still covering his unhealed wound. He pleaded not guilty in a firm voice to the charge of murder, but hesitated over the charge of attempted suicide. He was described as a lumberjack of imperfect education with a fresh complexion and of medium height. He has a short, stubby beard which gives him an untidy and unkempt appearance. Three fingers from his left hand were missing, having been cut off in a works accident. Colonel Salmon, the presiding judge in this case, suggested that the prisoner should be sat in the court, and so Henry was placed on a bench with seven other men, all with their coat collars turned up, so that no one could see the prisoner's throat, which was still bandaged. The witnesses were then called in one at a time to see if they could pick him out, Five of them did, but the child, Agnes Annie Olsop, did not. The defence called several witnesses to describe Henry's character, one of whom was William George Jones, who had known Henry for 17 years. William was also a trustee of the Shepherds Friendly Society, of which Henry had been a member for 15 years. William said that Henry had been a quite hard-working an industrious man and had never known him out of temper. His wife, though, was often worse for drink and had been ordered out of the club several times. Another character witness 
John Cottrell, who had known Henry for 12 years, said that he'd always known him to be quiet. But his wife Sarah was seldom sober and often quarrelsome. On the 1st of June, Henry had asked John to go to a friend's house, where he had left a box containing 28 pawn tickets for goods pledged in his wife's name. John redeemed three of the items, which were for the clothes that Henry was wearing in court. Sarah's father, George, was distraught over the news of his daughter's violent death, which he had only found out through the Bristol newspapers. He never went to Thornbury, as he wasn't well at the time, but he did confirm the identity of William by the description that William was missing some fingers from one hand and toes from one foot. George's description of his son-in-law was completely different to Henry's friends. George described Henry as a lazy man who would get on at Sarah to sell this thing and that thing for money, even to sell up and go on the tramp. Sarah was a hard-working woman. Last time I saw Sarah was a fortnight ago. It was a club night. The prisoner was a member of the Shepherds Friendly Society meeting at the King's Head in Kingsland Road. Sometimes when he came back from work in another town, he'd pay off his debts and expenses. Then, one might say, he threw his money away. Then his wife would have to work to maintain him. When she was there a fortnight ago, she was working at the Great Western Cotton Works in Barton Hill, and he, the prisoner, was sweeping up for Mr Yallon, the contractor. At this point, the judge asked, Did he drink? George replied, I have known the prisoner to spend six shillings on drink on a Sunday between half past twelve and two p.m. George had no idea that his daughter was leaving Bristol. He said, She's lived here since she was 13 years old when she came with me from Highbridge. George also revealed that Sarah had had one child who had died as an infant some years previously. When asked about why Sarah wasn't wearing a wedding ring, he replied that she must have sold it along with all her other possessions. The Dundee Courier and Argos newspaper reported that it took only 20 minutes for the jury to return a verdict of guilty of manslaughter. Henry Cooper was sentenced to 12 years penal servitude, which appears to have been a lighter sentence than one would expect at this time, simply because he was drunk. There were some issues about what to do with Sarah's body. Sarah's family believed that there was a club at the Cotton Works which would pay £5 for funeral expenses. If that wasn't enough, it was usual to make collections there. Also, the Shepherds Friendly Society apparently owed money. It's also worth mentioning that Henry's friends at the Shepherds Friendly Society raised money amongst themselves for Henry's defence. Sarah had three sisters, one living in Bedminster, one in St Philip's and one in London. Mrs Lucy Robbins, who was the one living at 15 Chapel Lane, Bedminster, had little doubt that her sister was the victim from the description and so was the one to go to Thornbury to identify her body. This podcast has been especially edited from a Bradley Stoke FM radio show. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? So, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>